The people of Israel were tired of being tested, so what they did was they held a trial for God. Like insolent children, when they didn't get their way, when they didn't get what they wanted, they began to question God. They demanded that he give them water to drink. They accused God of murder, and then they asked if God was even with them at all. It might boggle the mind if we don't have the ability to see ourselves in this story. It might boggle the mind to see how they could have uh, seen so much power from God and then still struggle in belief. Still ask questions like, is God with us? Or has God brought us this far to hurt us or kill us? But how often do we put God to the test in this manner? We witness Red Sea type miracles at least, at a very minimum, in God saving a depraved, wretched, fallen enemy stranger, in God saving us and making us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is a Red Sea type miracle. And if you don't believe that, you don't understand the depth of your depravity and the grace of God and salvation. That is a Red Sea type miracle. And yet often we say, is God with us? Has God brought us this far to hurt us or kill us? We act like God has never done anything spectacular in life. We get through the bitterness of Mara or the salvation that is filled by the daily manna, the daily bread of God. We get so far out of Egypt and we look at our trials and our testings and maybe we are waiting on answers and we ask God, Lord, why did you bring me this far to give me an answer that I'm not ready to receive? Lord, why would you not have just cut me off a long time ago if you were going to bring me out this far to let it end this way or to let it disappoint me? And yet still, even in our unbelief, the Lord is still sovereign. And the Lord still follows his plan. Often we have experienced such great power in our life and we are minimally affected by it that we treat the providence of God as little acts of chance and luck. Oh yes, the walls of the Red Sea parting, uh, and, and we're walking through on dry land. That was just a natural phenomenon. Bitter water turning sweet. That happens every day. Or, or bread coming down from heaven. Six out of the seven days of the week. Let's explain it away. These are just natural and normal, enough for us to believe that God is not with us or that he cares for us. Boy, we are sure sure are lucky that those things happen to us. I say that tongue-in-cheek because often we respond this way to God. Yes, the sinner who was headed down their own path of ungodliness just amazingly one day woke up and decided, you know what, I'm going to follow God who is currently the direct opposite of what I'm living my life. I'm so entrenched in sin and filth of this world that I'm just going to automatically, you know what? This God thing seems pretty good to try for a little while. We discount the work of God and salvation and we accredit it to the will of man and we discount the power of God. So it's easy for us to say, is God even amongst us? Is God even with us? We can't supply our own daily bread, and yet somehow we have it, and often we think, man, we are lucky. Or look how we are responsible for it. Often, like the Israelites, we give so much credit to human free will and effort. 
that it makes, us easy, it makes it easy for us to deny the work and effort of God. And it makes, us, it makes it easy for us to deny God when we don't have the strength to go on. Because to that point, we feel like we've gotten ourselves there anyway. Which is why I think it's a, pri- I think it's a primary reason that the people put the Lord on trial. Spiritually immature people live on their own will and own efforts as long as they can. And when those aren't enough anymore, they rely on God. And then when God doesn't answer them in the minuscule amount of time that they rely on God, or He doesn't answer them in the exact way, or He doesn't provide them for them like they thought they should be provided for, or He tests them and He tries them, they, they have become so accustomed to getting what they want in their own will and their own power that they complain and they, cr- and they grumble and they put God to the test. Do you understand what I'm saying? Have I confused you yet? The reason the people of God wondered if God was there is because in their immaturity, they had yet to give him credit for any of the goodness that he had done in their lives. They had accredited to themselves. And when the bad parts come, they say, well, I certainly didn't do this. So it must have been God. They wanted a vending machine of goodness more than they wanted a direct line of the goodness of God. They wanted it when they couldn't get themselves through anymore. They wanted it when they couldn't accomplish the work. I do want to point out something else that's very important. We've talked several weeks about grumbling and complaining, and and last week I barely mentioned the difference between grumbling and complaining. But there is a key factor you must understand, because I don't want you to be people who think, well, what can I say to God? What, what is acceptable? I want you to know. I want you to know. There's a key difference. There's a key factor. And I think it distinguishes between the person who cries to the Lord from being a grumbling and a complaining as opposed to, uh, excuse me, cries to the Lord and grumbling and complaining as opposed to a person who is just crying out, who is fearful, who mourns, or some other acceptable human response during trials. Now, I talked about this factor last week, and I hoped you grabbed on, but the biggest distinguishing factor in these types of responses is just simply this. It's where does your trust lie? It's trust. Trust and the growth of trust is a key ingredient to being someone who grumbles and complains, to to going from someone who grumbles and complains to being someone who makes their request known to God like he asked. There are a lot of Christians who are out of the will of God uh, while doing the things of God because they don't do those things with an attitude of trust. You can distinguish those people by the way they talk and the way they respond physically and spiritually to trials. You see this with the people of God. They were ready and willing to go along with Moses. Let me obey what Moses has said that the Lord has said. But as soon as things don't go their way, they have, or the way they have it pictured in their minds, um, they're out. They're done. And, or at least we'll hang on a little bit longer just so I can tell you how I feel about it. The difference between the Christian who is growing and maturity and the Christian who isn't oftentimes is just simply trust. Where your trust lies. One reads the Bible because he's supposed to, and the other reads the Bible because he can't live without the bread of life. Trust. 
One prays because that's what Christians do, and the other because he recognizes his weakness and inability without constant connection, constant communication with God. One shares the gospel out of obligation, and the other because it is to the glory of the Lord uh, to obey, and it's to the glory of the Lord when sinners repent and believe. The difference between the first and the latter is oftentimes simply trust. So what makes a person go from a grumbler and a tester of the Lord to a person who trusts and casts all of his cares upon the Lord in a spiritually mature way? I want to give you a few things that help me. There are just a few practical ideas that have helped me. Number one, let anxiety lead you to prayer. Let anxiety lead you to prayer. This is what these people were facing. These people were facing anxiety. <coughs> Philippians 4, 4, they were facing the anxiety that came along with the trial. Excuse me, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The prescription for anxiety is often, at least it should be first, prayer. Let your anxieties be known to God. Do not be anxious, but in prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what is the opposite of anxiety? Peace. Peace. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will be given to you. Friends, the first place we should go when life's trials make us anxious and overwhelmed is prayer. Now, now you need to hear this. This is not, a, this is not an anti-anxiety medicine sermon. Amen. Now, for different people, some people have it to the point where they cannot cope. But I will also tell you, everyone has anxiety. Everyone has anxiety. Literally everyone. And for the most part, people... Uh, and I'm not speaking of anybody indirectly, or directly here. This is all just sort of indirect, in general, things. Most people think their anxiety is way worse than the next person's anxiety. Everyone has anxiety, literally everyone, and most people think that their anxiety is more than the next person. And what we do when we try to, like, trump your anxiety with my anxiety is we say, God may be enough for your anxiety, but it's not enough for the anxiety that I have. You don't understand. You can't experience, you haven't, you, you can't, you know, God looked at all anxiety. God looked at the anxiety that David had after he killed, uh, after he killed Uriah, after he cheated with Bathsheba. God looked at the anxiety that David had as his own son was turning against him. And he said to David, just like he says to you, cast all your anxiety upon me. Do not be anxious about anything. God looked at the people of God as they faced the Egyptians at the Red Sea, and he said, cast your anxiety upon me. There are four Ps that are the go-to for Christians and others when it comes to anxiety. You go to people, you go to pouting, you go to pills, and you go to prayer. And it's usually in that order. It's usually in that order. Often with prayer being the last option or sort of a way of throwing God a bone. Friends, I want to tell you, this is not, a, again, this is not an anti-anxiety medicine sermon because I think it's helpful. I think there are a lot of factors 
that are in this world now that make anxiety for many people, or anxiety medicine for many people, one of the only options. But the anxious people remain anxious because, not because their pills aren't working, but because they don't trust. The anxious people remain anxious not because pouting isn't working, but because they don't trust. The anxious people remain anxious not because other people aren't helping them, but because they don't trust the God who says, cast all of your anxieties upon me. Pray in thankfulness. Pray with supplications. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will be given to you. I'm not saying that prayer is the only answer, but friends, we must believe in God enough where prayer is an answer. Do you hear me? We must trust God enough where prayer is an answer. Pray for those that cause you anxiety. That's another thing that's helped me. Pray for those. Not only, not only just let your anxiety lead you to prayer, but pray for those who cause you anxiety. Matthew 5, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In our story, God was the one causing their anxiety, but we often have anxiety that is caused by others, often causing us to grumble or worry or even hate those people. And without fail, when this has happened in my life, and I have prayed for those people, prayed for those relationships, without fail, I have begun to change my grumbling, my complaining about that person into love. I didn't do that. It has happened. Without fail, when I... Now, it takes time, and it, there are steps forward, and there are steps backwards. I can think of a specific incident where I still pray for this person probably more than I pray for any other person because... My relationship with them has grown only when I prayed for them. And it's not this type prayer for them. This is not what I'm saying. Lord, would you help Drew? Because he is annoying. And um, I, if, if, I, if, if you don't help him, I'm going to beat him up. And then I'm going to be sinning. It's not that kind of prayer. Lord, I don't know what's going on with me and Drew. I don't know what's going on with me and Drew right now, but... I need you to help me understand him. I need you to help me treat him better. I need you to help me have patience with him. I'm telling you, man, there is something that softens an anxious heart when you start praying for those who cause you anxiety. And this is Christians and non-Christians alike. This is not just for non-Christians. I mean, it's not just for Christians. You need to pray for your non-Christian bosses. Pray that they'll be saved. Pray that you will turn your resentment towards them and an opportunity to share the gospel to them. You, th- you, th- you, think, you think your resentment towards your bosses, you think your resentment towards uh, people out in the public eye, you think resentment towards people is going to get you closer to them? Or do you think, you think if you share the gospel and they come to Christ and all of a sudden you have a spiritual child, you have a spiritual child, you think that's going to win them over? Friends, I want to tell you, when you start treating people and looking at people like God does, and one of the ways you do that is by praying for them, you're going to remove a lot of anxious type, or people that cause you anxiety, which is going to remove anxious situations. So when we're praying, we need to stop looking for God. We need to stop looking at the anxiety itself and looking at the cause and seeing if there's anything that we can do to help alleviate this anxiety especially in the sense that we are kind to others, loving to others, that we pray for others. So we let our anxiety lead us to prayer. We pray for those causing anxiety. 
Here's something that has helped me re, uh, re, relieve anxiety uh, more than I can imagine. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Friends, I want to tell you, now I, I've never been to the point of, I mean, I've been to the point of anxiety medicine. I haven't taken anxiety medicine. But I remember multiple times in my life where my head would go numb, my head would go numb, and I would feel like I was floating above wherever I was. And it was some sort of minor anxiety or panic attack. And I remember going from, and I'm not saying that I have the prescription of this for this, but I remember going from being uh, an anxious and overwhelmed person to a person who now at this point lets very little overwhelm him. Very little overwhelm him. I'm not saying I'm, I'm perfect or any way, but one of the things that got me to, that gets me and is keeping to get me to that place is rejoicing in the Lord. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's funny that those words are used right there. Do you know what anxiety, the root of anxiety is? It's an overwhelming feeling that comes from unreasonable thought. Have you thought about that? Anxiety is an overwhelming feeling that comes from unreasonable thought. You are full of unreasonable thoughts that you can't solve because there's not a reasonable answer to solve them and you are overwhelmed by them. The Bible says one prescription to being a reasonable person is to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Friends, I want to I tell you, if you're rejoicing in the Lord as a primary response to what comes out of your mouth, you can't be grumbling, you can't be complaining, and you can't be questioning God. But it's funny that the same mouth that rejoices in the Lord is also the same mouth that questions God and asks Him, what are you doing? What are you doing, God? Christians, we should be realists, but also we should be optimistic, some of the most optimistic people around. The last thing that's helped me is this. Be sad, mourn, be desperate, but don't be angry with God. Be sad, mourn, be desperate, but don't be angry with God. Friends, let your desperation cause you to trust more in the Lord. Cry to Him, lament, hurt, question God in a godly manner, but don't be angry with Him. As hard as it is to see, the Bible says that each trial you face is a gift from God. No matter how it feels, it would be unwise to angrily reject the gifts of God. (coughs) His trials for you are because He cares for you. He is pruning you into the likeness of Jesus Christ for His glory. Be angry. I mean, be, be sad. Mourn. Be desperate. But don't be angry. The Lord hears your desperate cries. He responds to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their pleas, Psalm 102 says. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth, Psalm 145. There are many more, I'm sure. But a few things on the front, these are just a few things on the front line of maintaining and trusting in the Lord. Do not put your Lord, do not put the Lord your God to the test. There's a second truth from our text that will help you grow more in the likeness of God. And we will just stay on this for a minute, but it's pretty awesome. Trust in a better Moses. If you've had great preaching in your life, what I'm going to say to you is not, might not affect you. It might not be a surprise to you. 
But sometimes the preaching we've had is amiss a little bit, so you might have missed this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 that the stories of the journey of the Israelites were recorded for an example for the future generation so that every generation would look at the text and read and would see how to and how not to handle their journey to be more like Jesus. If this is true, then this point and my next point are extremely important. Moses was a cheap type of a better mediator, a better leader. But this is even cooler. We see what happens in our story in verses 1 uh, through 8, I believe. 1 through 7, maybe. We see what happens in the story. The people of God, they put the Lord to the test. The Lord tells Moses that he will come down in front of them, and Moses is to strike the rock, and the, <laughs> and the rock will pour out fountains of water. Whereas the people of God put God to the test, where they put him on trial for not providing them in the wilderness, they would later put another mediator on trial. They would later put another mediator to the test. Whereas Moses struck the rock and water poured out from it, another rock would be struck, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And when the blood and water poured out from him as a means of signifying, uh, the blood, excuse me, the blood and water poured out from him as a means of signifying the water of life that he had just provided. <coughs> and Jesus, and just as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, this water I have for you, if you drink, you will never thirst again. We can partake of that same water and never thirst again. Moses was a cheap mediator. The Lord stood before Moses. I think it was Christ uh, that stood before Moses. And Moses struck the, the rock and the water satisfied them for that time. And there was some more grumbling to come. You can best bet. The water satisfied them for a time. But that story, friends, is to point us to a better mediator, a better Moses, who would step down from heaven, who would be lifted up on a cross, who would be struck, who would be pierced. And as blood and water poured out of his body, he was symbolizing to us that the water of life had come. And if you drink of that water, you will never thirst again. The truth of the matter is this, friends. That gospel maturity comes when we desire the spiritual over the physical. And although the water of life doesn't necessarily, it's not guaranteed that it will promise us physical, fruitful blessings on this earth, it is promised that we will have. We shall share with each other in that water from this time forth. The greatest lesson that can be learned from our text today is that the source of life comes from where the source of life comes from and to trust in that source more than physical fulfillment. I want to give you one more aspect of going onward towards spiritual maturity that I think is vastly important, and we'll just spend a few more minutes on this. Do not discount the power and importance of prayer. You cannot discount the power and importance of prayer. There's another story that seems a little unrelated, but it is telling for us as we move onward towards growth in the Lord. The Amalekites, they attack Moses and the people of God. Moses tells Joshua, go and gather men and go and fight. Joshua did this. They go down in the valley to meet the Amalekites. Moses, Aaron, and Hur, they go up on a hill to sort of watch what's going on. When Moses raises his hands, the people of God would win. When Moses lowered his hands, the people of God would lose. In order to prevent Moses from lowering his hands, Aaron and Hur, they set Moses on a rock and they hold up his arms. 
I want to give you a very, I want to give you some very important thought and some very important practical ideas that come from this. Our story today is just one of many stories that remind us that as we grow, we will begin to see our battles and our struggles as spiritual and not merely physical. This story may be the most evident because there is a contrast between victory and defeat, and it doesn't come from the self-effort of Joshua and his men, but it comes from the Lord as we see Moses, I believe, praying, as we see Moses calling upon the power of the Lord. When Moses was holding up his hands, they were winning. And he was lowering, lowering his hands, they were losing. To me, this is a sure sign that our battle we will, we will fight is a spiritual battle. It will be fought in the spiritual trenches, fought in the spiritual trenches, and not by physical means. We see it in other stories. The physical hunger was fulfilled by the supernatural God who poured out manna from heaven. The water in Mara was healed in a miraculous way by a log being thrown into the water. The Red Sea was parted that could have only come from the power of God. Pharaoh's hard heart was defeated by the supernatural plagues. One sure sign of spiritual growth is that we depend less on the physical to provide answers to the spiritual problems. We depend more on the power of prayer. I believe this, will, this is what Moses was doing. Friends, I could be wrong in this. What Moses was praying, I think. He likely had the rod in his hand or he had his hands raised. But either way, this was a typical posture of prayer. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 that he would have, ever, that he'd have men everywhere who would be lifting up, who would be praying, lifting up holy hands. The Israelites defeated the Amalekites that day because Moses was interceding on their behalf and God poured out his power to defeat those people. I must confess to you, one way that I know that I have a long way to go in my own spiritual walk is because I would not classify my per- myself as a person of prayer. I would not classify my per- myself as a prayer warrior. I don't pray much for the church. I don't pray enough for the church until struggles come. I don't pray enough for my family until something compels me to. Often I am reactionary in prayer as opposed to being sort of ahead of the game. As opposed to being proactive in prayer. For years I lied to myself, friends, and this may be you. I said, you know what? I just trust so much in the sovereignty of God that what happens is going to happen It's the will of the Lord, and it's going to happen. In truth, it was because I didn't trust him enough to be dependent upon him for every step of my journey. We know why we pray, because God commands it. But why is it the first place we should go? Why is prayer so important? Why is the power of prayer so vastly important? I want to give you three little things and then we'll end today. Three small things of why I think we should depend on prayer. Why we should trust in the power of prayer. Why we should trust how important it is. The first is this. Prayer is a spiritual discipline for a spiritual battle. Prayer is a spiritual discipline for a spiritual battle. Since we are not in a battle with flesh and blood, we must fight this spiritual or this physical battle this spirit, excuse me, this physical sort of seeming battle with spiritual means. Prayer is a spiritual discipline for a spiritual battle. Friends, the reason we must hold 
importance, the reason we must hold to the importance of prayer is because if we don't, we will be defeated every time. We will try to throw, we will try to throw all of our physical means, all of our physical ability at a spiritual problem, and we will never get the answers we're looking for. Prayer is a spiritual discipline for a spiritual battle. Another thing that we see about prayer and why it's so important is prayer is effectively done as a corporate act. Prayer is effectively done as a corporate act. I don't think that Aaron and her, uh, I don't think their role in the story can be overlooked. I think what they were doing was they were interceding with Moses. They were praying with Moses, or at least they were not going to let Moses fall or fail in prayer. So they were supporting him while he was praying. Friends, corporate prayer is vastly important in the walk of every believer. In James, they were told to gather the elders when someone was sick and pray for the sick person. Prayer is often spoken of in a plural tense as opposed to a singular tense. Psalm 133, how good is it when God's people live together in unity? And one of the most unifying things that we can do as a people is prayer. Is pray. When we get together, we pray together. Like Hebrews 10 says, we spur each other towards good deeds. We pray in our service around four times a week. And then we pray at MC. But if you ask me... I don't think that we pray enough. We fast over specific situations. We've asked you to fast over our elder installation. We meet uh, installation several years ago. We meet and we pray for you at leadership team meetings. But I don't think it's enough. We would all grow in wisdom and unity if we continually seek opportunities and times to pray with our church and to pray with our, uh, our families daily. Friends, you know how I know that we don't, we are not trusting, we don't believe necessarily as much as we should in the power of prayer and its purposes, its part in our life? It's because any time you offer a time to pray, it'll be the least attended time of any other activity that you can offer God's people. I will tell you, people don't ask me this anymore, but people used to ask me all the time, do you think vintage will make it? Do you think vintage will make it? They used to ask me all the time. Sometimes, sometimes I wonder. Very, very, very few, very few times. But I will tell you, friends, unless we commit to praying for each other, for our church, for the world, for our, for our gospel reach, for our family, unless we commit to praying corporately and individually, friends, vintage won't make it. And even if we exist, we're not making it. Even if we still exist, we're not making it. I have these sort of epiphany type moments where I need to like recommit to praying for you constantly. And that's a moment I'm going through in my life right now. I get so bogged down by the physical that I forget that this is a spiritual discipline for a spiritual battle. The other part that grows us, that moves us, that makes us see the power and importance of prayer is that answered prayer is a banner of the faithfulness of God. Answered prayer is a banner of the faithfulness of God. Look at this and we'll be done. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. This is like a warrior, this is like a cloth that uh, had the insignia of the army and they would hold it up 
and it would be sort of in the middle of the lines. And what it would do is it would give the the warriors, it would give them their bearings. Like if they started fighting and they got off track, it would give them their bearings. But also, as long as that banner was there, they knew that they were still fighting. If the banner went down, they knew the fight was over. But as long as that banner was there, they knew that they were still fighting. Friends, you need to hear this. Answered prayer, growing in spiritual maturity is the understanding that answered prayer in the past, answered prayer in the present, presence, and the fact that God's going to answer prayer in the future is a banner, is a banner for us that we may remember the faithfulness of God. It's a banner for us that we may grow in more and more maturity so that the next time these trials come our way, we remember God was faithful. God is faithful. God will be faithful. There's also a banner that's a reminder. There was a banner lifted up at Mount Calvary. The faithful Lord, the Lord our banner, was lifted up at the cross of Calvary. And the cross and his tomb, the resurrection, all serve as a banner for everyone here that the Lord is faithful he is working, and he will always, he will always care for his children. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will move us through to be more like him until we die or till he returns. Pray with me today. God, you're good. You're loving. We trust you. We love you. And you are holy. There is none like you. Uh, God, many have tried to put you away. Many have tried to hide you. Many have tried to overthrow you, but Lord, you still remain on your throne. You're faithful to your children. Lord, if we submit to you, if we trust you, if we love you, you will guide us, lead us. You will give us the life that you have designed for us. Lord, help us to fight the spiritual battles of these world, of this world with the spiritual disciplines of prayer. Lord, help us to trust you enough that we come to you that we cast all of our cares upon you because we know that you care for us. We love you so much. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen.